0: Hi, Dave Emmer here. This is For The Record, program number 1265. Interview number four with Jim DiEgenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on October 7th of the year 2022. And once again, it is my pleasure and privilege to bring back to our airwaves Jim DiEgenio, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed that we visited with uh, visited about for 25 hours back in 2018 and 2019. And now he has not only written the screenplay for but written the accompanying book to JFK Revisited, Oliver Stone's new documentary. Jim, welcome back once again to our area. Nice,
1: nice to be here, Dave.
0: You know, we've been uh, schmoozing a bit about living in, uh, well, what really could be called the big lie, because even though uh, people like Oliver Stone and people like Peter Bale Scott, people like yourselves and uh, many others have done a yeoman-like job of exposing the truth about how we got into Vietnam, how JFK's assassination fundamentally changed our policy, we're always up against the big lie. And I hear so often from people who I think can probably know better that look, JFK was a warmonger. He got us into Vietnam. McNamara was a warmonger, blah, 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 blah. And yet, as we've already discussed in these interviews, uh, the official version is at variance with what can be objectively determined if jfk was actually pulling us out but you're know, living in in the world of the lie so to speak is well i think it, it, it's significant and i wonder what some of your insights are in that regard granted these are subjective impressions and we've already spoken about some of the objective facts but uh you like yourself live in the middle of the big lie, and uh, you've been uh, walking, if not point, pretty close to it with Oliver Stone in counteracting what actually happened.
1: Yeah, well, see, one of the things that we tried to do and Oliver has tried to do, okay, Um, see, when McNamara left office in that debrief I was talking about, he made it clear that it didn't matter what position the United States was in or Saigon was in, winning or losing. We were leaving once the training period was over. And in fact, he says this not just in the debrief, but there's a tape of a meeting in October of 1963 where he talks about this withdrawal plan that he's implementing and McGeorge Bundy says, what's that all about? Because Kennedy did not tell Bundy about it, okay, because he he thought he was too hawkish. And McNamara says, this is our plan for getting out of Vietnam. We have to have a plan to get out, all right? And like I said, in the debrief, it didn't matter if we were winning or losing. See, what's happened with the Vietnam War is that with the rise of the militarization, of American foreign policy. Okay. There's been an, a whole new mythology about that war, how we really didn't lose the war, that somehow we were betrayed by certain people in high positions. Okay. And that's how we ended up in the position that we were in, that is leaving, you know, and Saigon falling. It's the equivalent. Of what the German Nazi Party did, okay, uh, as a way of getting off the ground in Weimar, Germany, that somehow Germany really didn't lose World War I, that they were betrayed by certain people in high office. This became the stab in the back idea, it began in the United States in the 1980s with a guy named Gunther Louie who wrote a book called America and Vietnam and then Norman Poderhurtz who wrote a follow-up book. I believe it was called America and Vietnam. And they began this whole idea that V A, Vietnam was a noble cause. We were doing the right thing and B, if if we wouldn't have been resisted by so many students and, uh, you know, and civil libertarians, et cetera. And if we would have been able to fight the war with both hands, that we would have defeated Hanoi. Okay. This has become, I, I, if you don't know how big this industry has become, it has become a major preoccupation of the right. There's a book out called Triumph Forsaken. Okay. uh By a guy named Moyer. Okay, who is, is rewriting the whole, uh, startup of that war. Okay. Uh, that, uh, that Diem was somehow a fine leader. Okay. And, and, and that we really didn't lose the battle of Ap Bach in 1963. It's, a, it, it's astonishing to read this stuff. Okay. And I, look, the Vietnam War was a tragedy for both Vietnam and the United States. And the reason I believe, one of the reasons that the United States went in so blindly, you know, without thinking, okay, was because of the huge propaganda mill that erupted in the United States after World War II, which tried to sell the idea that somehow it was the United States who had defeated Nazi Germany in Europe, okay, and you know, there's all the, I don't have to tell you all the war movies like The Longest Day, et cetera. You know, um, you know, that, 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 that broadcast this to a mass audience. When in fact, this is really not true. You know, the, 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 the Nazi war machine was defeated by General Zhukov and the Russians. Okay. Operation Barbarossa was turned back. At two major battles, the Battle of Stalingrad, which killed the German infantry, okay, and the Battle at Kursk, which defeated the, the Nazi Panther divisions, and anybody who knows anything about World War II will will tell you that, okay, it was those two terrible defeats that turned back the Blitzkrieg. Okay, and it was the first time it had happened in entire in the whole war. Because Hitler had just gone through all these other countries like a knife through butter, including France. All right. But it was the rush the combination of the Russian winner, his mistakes and the brilliance of Zhukov. Okay. That turned back the Nazi war machine. That, that's what really defeated the, the Nazi war machine. And, and Kennedy was trying to talk about this in his American university speech. Okay, about what the Nazi invasion of, of Russia had done to that country. Okay. And see, but this myth that somehow we had defeated the Nazi war machine, this carried over into this feeling of omnipotence. Okay. That, that nobody could defeat, uh, the American army, that nobody could defeat the American military force. Okay. And that's one of the things I believe that plunged us in to Vietnam, that we did not understand the fundamental difference between fighting a war in the jungle and fighting a war, an infantry air war in Europe or in the Pacific Islands. And and the reason that Kennedy understood this number one, he had been there, okay, all right, in nineteen fifty one, he got this advice from Seymour Topping and Edmund Gillian. Another reason, though, is he had a two-hour meeting with General MacArthur in 1961, okay? And he told him, you do not want to get into a land war in Asia, okay? Unless you're willing to commit a million men, okay, you don't want to be a part of anything like that. And so you know what Kennedy would do then? One of the ploys he would use OK, against people who wanted him to commit to Southeast Asia was he would listen to what they say and then he would say, now you go tell Douglas MacArthur what you just told me and you come back and you tell me what he says.
0: <laughs> it's also worth noting that uh, David Shuk, uh General David Shook, who was the commandant of the Marine Corps at that point in time, also said, you know, to win in Vietnam. I'm going to need a million troops. And, uh, That's
1: correct. I, David Shoup was the one guy on the Joint Chiefs that Kennedy actually liked. Okay, because he shared this same view of America and Vietnam.
0: Uh, Shoup, by the way, uh, was an admirer of General Smedley Butler, who uh, panned the uh, famous uh, previous on War is a Racket and exposed the 1934 coup attempt uh, against FDR. But uh, David Shoup was quite explicit about how America's Cold War policy was driving these third-world countries into the arms of the communists. And that was an explicit observation that he made. And I think that points fundamentally to the dynamic that JFK manifested as a result of his understanding of the emerging nations, of the uh, emerging colonial properties who aspired to independence and uh, that were instead cast into the Cold War meat grinder. And uh, it was that Understanding on the part of Kennedy, and uh, also the uh, attempts on his part to counteract that uh, that momentum, that juggernaut, that was minted under Allen and John Foster that was the Sullivan and Palmer partners and brothers who were Secretary of State. And head of the CIA under Eisenhower, and yes, even it was yes. maybe under Truman, and uh that was a a fundamental aspect of JFK's national and foreign national security and foreign policy. And I think, uh, in addition to the parsing of the physical evidence, and we'll get into that, I think there is no more important aspect of JFK revisited and uh, the book, then pointing out how Kennedy's understanding, I think explicitly uh, communicated by uh, President Sukarno of Indonesia, and then quoted very presciently, I think, or very insightfully by Lisa Peace, both in the documentary, that I've read uh, the transcript. I don't think that one could could exaggerate, the importance of Kennedy's understanding of that dynamic, basically placing him not only decades ahead of most observers, but frankly placing him in a a, a a policy manifestation that is not only espoused by the so-called progressive sector, but then they they fault Kennedy for not espousing what they believe when in fact he not only espoused it, but attempted to put it into practice long before they even thought about it in most cases, and he was killed in no no small measure for doing that.
1: Um, Yeah, see, see, the thing is that Kennedy, as opposed to John Foster Dulles, um, he was not diametrically against the non-aligned movement. Okay, which began to pick up steam in about 1954 with the meeting in Bandung, Indonesia, led by people like Sukarno uh, and Nasser. See, what he said is, look, we don't have to be automatically opposed to these third-world leftist kind of leaders. What we can do is we can compete with the Russians. Okay? And an open barter movement by just going ahead and cooperating with them, giving them the aid that they need. Okay. And not being opposed to everything that they do. Okay. And, and actually trying to cooperate with them. And these guys understood that people like Nasser, people, you know, like Sicarno, people like Juan Bosch in the Caribbean. Okay. They all under recognized what Kennedy was trying to do and they very much appreciated those things he was doing, you know, and it was actually, I think, you know, being as objective as I can, you know, I believe that was a successful policy. No, now it didn't last very long. You know, Kennedy was only in office for two years and 10 months, but I believe that was a successful policy that kept us out of war. Okay, and and believe me, Kennedy had at least three opportunities to go to war if he wanted to go to war. Okay, at the Bay of Pigs, when his military advisors were telling him to go ahead and bail out this failed operation, he did not. Okay, in November of 1961, when everybody wanted to send combat troops into Vietnam, he would not do it. Okay, and then during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when everybody was urging him to either go ahead and launch an air armada or an actual invasion, okay, to get the Russians out of Cuba. And he did not do it there either, you know, and I believe, you know, that you can prove, for example, Nixon actually encouraged Kennedy to go ahead in at the Bay of Peaks. If you read the transcripts of the uh of the missile crisis, all right, which I've done, Johnson thought Kennedy was too soft. He thought he was giving up too much. He actually was pushing, you know, for something much more violent. OK, you know, it's right there in black and white if you want to read it. And we know what Johnson and Nixon would have done in Vietnam and Eisenhower also in Vietnam. Eisenhower even told. Johnson, okay, that if he wanted to, he could use atomic weapons. Okay. See, the, and this is what I mean. I mean, these, this is all evidence. Okay. That disproves what the MSM and these popular, you know, left wing guys, you know, have been saying all along, you know, and uh, in, in my opinion, you know, th- this, this, this case is settled now. Okay. Kennedy was not going into Vietnam. Kennedy was trying for a rapprochement with Fidel Castro in 1963. He was processing a detente with Khrushchev in 1963. And now the, and so the obvious supposition is that the world would have been quite different if Kennedy would not have been assassinated. And that's what these guys don't want to face up to.
0: The title of your book, Destiny Betrayed, I think goes right to the core of that, Jim. Um, Before we move to JFK's views on things and policy toward things in other continents, uh, staying in Southeast Asia, French Indochina was uh, not only what we, we know as North and South Vietnam, but also Laos and Cambodia. Another area in which JFK claft with the National Security Establishment and with the momentum of the Eisenhower Dallas State Department was in Laos. Tell us about that.
1: This is this is really, really an interesting subject because when Kennedy visited Eisenhower um, when they were doing a transition, Eisenhower specifically said that he thought that the danger point would be in Laos, okay? And he told Kennedy that he had to be ready to go ahead and commit American intervention in Laos, okay? Now, what happened, of course, was that this ended up being prophetic because one of the very first places the Pentagon wanted Kennedy to go into was Laos, okay, when, when, when he actually takes office. And this is, of course, before the big showdown on Vietnam in November of 1961. Now, in retrospect, what makes this so ridiculous is that at this time, Laos was even more of a backward agricultural country than Vietnam was. You know, as as they say, there really wasn't any there there, all right? And in fact, what created the there there was when Alan Dulles opened up a CIA station in Laos in the 1950s. And the Pentagon decided to send a military advisement group there, all right? Okay, so what happened was those two moves created a split in what was a very nascent, uh, political scheme in Laos at the time. Okay, between the royal family and, uh, the more conservative groups. Okay. Um, and, and what happened is, that Kennedy understood that there was going to be a problem there that was going to be pushed on him, okay, and so he decided essentially go ahead and step in to the situation, and he tell- and he communicated with the Russians that look, I'm willing to deal on this, okay between. You know the path at Lao, okay that you're backing, and the more conservative groups uh that Eisenhower was backing all right, and they got the message, and so Kennedy made a speech all right about um you know using uh the uh a kind of bluff about moving an eighty. Into the, the South China Sea, et cetera. All right. And that was enough to go ahead and cow the opposition and set up a negotiation. Okay. Uh, and he sent Avril Harriman to go ahead and doing the, and he told him specifically, look, I want a neutralist solution to this thing. Okay. I don't want to go to war over this country. Okay, it's it's not worth going to war over. He actually said that, by the way. Laos is not worth going to the brink over. All right? Okay, and so he sent Harriman, and Harriman went ahead and negotiated a neutralist solution, which I think took effect in 1962. And so that's how Kennedy got rid of the Laos problem. But as many people have said, all right, David Swanson and John Newman, et cetera, who've written a lot about this. They said that when Kennedy did that, when Kennedy kind of shoved Laos off the table, you know, these guys in the Pentagon, the CIA, they naturally gravitated. OK, if he's not going to give us a war of air, then let's start pushing for it in Vietnam. OK, and, and that's that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. Once Laos got, you know, kind of shoved aside by JFK, they began to push into Vietnam. People like Lansdale and Rostow, et cetera, now began to push for action in, in Vietnam. And, you know, and Kennedy, of course, then had to stop that. You know, I mean, it, it, it's really when, when you, uh, when you put together the whole thing, Okay, the whole picture of foreign policy from 1961 to 1963. You'll see that Kennedy is like a guy running a fire engine, okay, (laughs) pulling out the water hose, you know, at all these different places where the CIA and the Pentagon, you know, want, want to go to war over, you know, and, you know, as, as many people have said, you know, it was this continue determination by JFK not to repeat the mistakes of the past you know that eventually led to the decision you know that this guy has to go
0: it, it really is well I uh, w- this is going to be on the radio so I can't use the kind of language that I find myself inclined to use but the Recasting of what I think merits serious consideration as the most insightful and the most constructive post-World War II American foreign policy administration. Uh, the, the submersion of the reality of that and the substitution of what really is a right wing mythology, which has been buttressed by the left in this country, uh, is at one level, excuse me, profoundly tragic uh, at another level, absolutely obscene.
1: It oh, is- let me, let, let me explain something about that. You mentioned Peter Scott earlier. Okay. And Peter Scott was one of the very first people who talked about, who actually wrote about this, that Kennedy was going to go ahead and withdraw from Vietnam. He did this largely based on the declassified record of the Pentagon Papers. All right. And I think his essay was published, which was pretty seminal, in both Ramparts and as part of the Beacon Press version of the Pentagon Papers. Now, the editor's are the Pentagon Papers, the Beacon version, which is longer than the New York Times version. Okay. They were Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn. And they did not want to publish Peter's essay. And you know what their reason was? Their their reason was, that'll make it seem like a president can make a difference. (laughs) So in other words, it wasn't, it wasn't what was in the essay that they were disputing. It was the whole idea that somehow one man can make a difference in our government and in our path in foreign policy that they objected to. Zinn was very much opposed to it. Uh, Chomsky eventually relented on the grounds of freedom of speech, but they didn't want to publish it in the first place. Okay, even though, you know, Peter had written it specifically for that purpose. And that, see, see, I'm, although I consider myself a historian, I have never been one to let the ideology come in and affect the way I chronicle the facts. I mean, I'll be I'll be one of the first people who says, I I really hated Richard Nixon. But I believe Watergate was a CIA trap. Okay. Yep. You know, as proven by more than one author, Jim Hogan being one of them, you know, now that doesn't make any Nixon any better, but I'm just trying to see the event clearly, you know, and that's what I believe an historian is supposed to do. He's supposed to accumulate the facts and then from an accumulation of the of, of the most sound and the most reliable factual information, he draws a thesis from that. Okay, he doesn't eliminate the stuff that goes against his thesis. He includes that in there and he tries to counter it. Okay, you know, but saying, for example, from the beginning position, that that'll make it seem too much like a president can make an impact. I mean, that's not in that's not a historical judgment. That's an ideological ju- judgment.
0: We could perhaps call that stance Profiles in Cowardice. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's one us, way to put it. For younger listeners, JFK have a book that was very influential called Profiles in Courage, and this is the opposite of that. Yeah, the, uh, uh, material by P. Dale Scott was originally to be in a book called The War Conspiracy, which was suppressed. I then read an essay called The Kennedy Assassination and the Vietnam War, uh, in an anthology called The Assassinations. And I remember reading that in very early 1979. I had no idea, as someone that was part of the generation, that grew up with the Vietnam War, and I went into the draft lottery and was relieved that I didn't get uh, a higher number and so forth. But I had no idea that the Kennedy assassination in any way affected the history of the Vietnam War, and in fact, not only was it fundamentally uh, involved with what became our Vietnam policy, but it certainly appears that it was a major Motivation for killing Kennedy, and uh, up to that point, never imagined such a thing.
1: Yeah, well, uh, Peter's essay was also in a book called "Governed by Gunplay," which I think was nineteen seventy-six or nineteen seventy-seven. Yep, and and I, I believe I believe you know him and Fletcher Prouty were the first people. Who actually tried to get this message out and they were essentially, you know, what's the phrase? Pissing in the wind (laughs) to be uncomplimentary about it. You know, they just, they just couldn't get any traction on this idea. You know, no matter how many facts that, that they mounted, you know, um, there was also that book, uh, by, uh, Powers and O'Donnell. Um, about the JFK presidency, in which they took several pages disputing the fact that Johnson, you know, had continued uh Kennedy's policy in Vietnam. But see, but none of this, but none of this, like you're trying to say, none of this really made any impact. And in fact, the only the only time I can remember a really big impact of this idea was the combination of Oliver Stone's film in 1991 with John Newman's book, which came out in 1992. That actually made, if you can believe it, the front page of the New York Times book review in which they had Arthur Schlesinger uh, review John Newman's book. Okay. But the way, and I'm sure you're aware of this, the way this was attacked by both the extreme left and the MSM was simply unbelievable you know it it was shocking you know how this concept was attacked you know like it's sort of like you know look we're in denial and we don't give a damn how much evidence you have okay we're just not going to admit this because if we admit that the Vietnam War was caused by Kennedy's death, then that gives a perfect motivation to the things you're saying about the CIA and the Pentagon. Okay? Is it just a coincidence that everything changed so fast afterwards? I
0: don't think so. And that was not the only area by any means in which uh, JFK's policies were at fundamental variance with the momentum of American foreign policy and national security policy. Um, Pivoting from Southeast Asia, Jim, uh, an area in which JFK was not only years ahead of his time, but uh, given the gravitas of the film The Battle of Algiers in the uh, global left, Well, J.O.K. made the speech about Algeria, a French colony on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Tell us about when that took place and what it, basically what that speech maintained and the significance of it in terms of the quote from Sukarno that Lisa Peace articulated.
1: See, Kennedy was looking for a causus belli to make a kind of Testimonial speech about his growing opposition to both the Republicans and Democrats' foreign policy uh, kind of consensus, this Cold War consensus, and he found it in the French war in Algeria. Okay, uh, to take to make sure that Algeria stayed part of the French Empire. And so he gave the speech, which I believe is in the summer of 1957. He worked on this thing really hard. He even had his wife translate, uh, a couple of essays and maybe a book. Okay. That he did a lot of homework on this. He spent months, you know, preparing for this speech. All right. And then he gave the speech and. He was shocked at how vicious the opposition to that speech was. You know, his office did a a clipping of all the newspapers, magazines, etc. And it was something like three to one against. Okay, but Kennedy didn't back down. He didn't back down. He was taken aback by the ferocity of the opposition. But he didn't back down. A few months later, he wrote an essay, a long essay for Foreign Affairs magazine in which he essentially restated his position in a little bit more detail. And then the following year, when a very controversial book came out called The Ugly American, um, which was supposed to be a novel, but was really based on America's growing situation in in Vietnam. okay, Kennedy read the book, loved the book, he bought a hundred copies, gave one to all the other senators in the chamber, and then took out a full page ad in the New York Times, publicizing the book, helping it to become a bestseller. Uh, and by then, the way,
0: there, there was a recent—I mean, me- recent, the last few years—a uh, motion picture starring Michael Caine called *The Quiet American*, which was based very explicitly on *The Ugly American*.
1: No, 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 that no, Dave, that was based on Graham Graham Greene's novel, which I think came out in 1955. Okay, *The Quiet American*. Okay, they oh, okay. based that on that. There was a motion picture that came out in 62 with Marlon Brando that was based on The Ugly American.
0: Oh, okay, so I'm conflating them. Okay.
1: Yes. That movie had a hard time being made, and Kennedy intervened, (laughs) and he got them permission to film in Thailand. Okay? George England, the director, talked wrote about this later, that it was Kennedy who helped. That's how much he believed in getting the film made. And I'm sure you also know that Kennedy helped get made seven days in May. He actually got out of the White House one weekend and he went ahead and, uh, and he, and he, and he helped get that uh, film actually shot in the grounds of the White House. You know, I mean, talk about ironic, the ugly American in seven days in May.
0: <laughs> well, it is. And, and in particular, uh, Kennedy's work on seven days in May, although I don't recall we'll this being talked about in the film. It is haunting because it really, although in seven days in May, it's about an attempted coup d'etat in America when the Pentagon and associated elements found the president's uh, attempts at uh, making peace to be treasonous. So they try to overthrow uh, the legitimate constitutional authority. They are defeated in the movie. But that's Hollywood in real life. It looks like they've succeeded. <laughs> right. And uh, back back to Algeria, and uh, we should again note that this, like uh, Indochina in the early 1950s, was a French colony.: Yes, And so Kennedy became,
1: as you can imagine, very unpopular in France. In fact, he was warned not to visit the country. After after he made that speech. And the speech, you know, to sum it up, it was essentially a condemnation of what France was doing in Algeria, that they should go ahead and let Algeria go free. And it was very counterproductive for the United States to back this through NATO, plus to not say anything in public about this horrible mistake that France was now repeating. Because he said at the end of the speech, look, didn't we see this movie three years ago? And didn't it happen at Dien Ben Phu? And weren't we on the wrong side then? Do we want to really go through this all over again? You know, except this time on the north coast of Africa? And he said, no, we shouldn't be doing this. All right, what we should be doing is if we were really a friend of Paris, we should go ahead and help them to the negotiating table. But even more important than that, what we should do is start to free Africa. And this is really a rebel, you know, when you think about this, for nineteen, I'm 1957, to say something like that in 1957, you know, I mean, Eisenhower would be lucky if Eisenhower would see one African head of state a year back then. In two years and 10 months, Kennedy was visited by 28 of them. Okay, just do the arithmetic. All right, but that's what I mean about it. he really followed through on this. So what happened, of course, as, as we all know, Kennedy took a beating at first. But he ended up being correct. And I think it was Alistair Cook, the British writer, uh, who said at the time, you know, everybody's perceiving that Kennedy is wrong about this. But if this keeps up, Kennedy has positioned himself to be the man out front that Republicans want to attack. And by the way, they did. John Foster Dulles, Nixon, and Eisenhower all attacked Kennedy for his position. And within one year, Kennedy was on the cover of Time magazine. The inside headline on the story was titled Man Out Front.
0: And uh, eventually, as the French policy unfolded, Charles de Gaulle acted in a manner consistent with what JFK had been advocating with regard to Algeria, and then he faced an armed reaction, an armed insurrection, which also dovetails with the events of Dallas. Tell us about the Gaul Algeria and l'organisation de l'armée secrète, the OAS.
1: The prior government, I believe, it was the, called the Fourth Republic. Okay. Or might have, excuse me, you might have been in the Fifth Republic. Okay. Had essentially collapsed, all right, and because of this Algerian situation, all right, there, I think there were something like 1.2 million French citizens who were living in Algeria because it was right across the Mediterranean Sea. And them and the uh, the military forces that were stationed there, the vast majority of them did not want to see a peaceful resolution and to see Algeria become an independent nation. So when de Gaulle came in and he announced that this was going to be the policy that he was going to pursue. All right, there began to be a very serious opposition to de Gaulle's position. And this position evolved into something an organized opposition, both covert and overt, that was led by something called the OAS, the Secret Army Organization. And these guys really decided that they were going to take the law into their own hands, and they were really playing for keeps. And so they decided that they were going to do two things. They were going to... Actually trying to assassinate de Gaulle, which they did several times. All right. And if that didn't work, they're going to try and overthrow the government. Okay. And so that I believe was in 1961. David Talbot does a nice job on writing about that in his book, The Devil's Chessboard. Okay. Where they actually did a, a paratroop invasion of Paris and de Gaulle. Went to the broadcast station and he rallied all the French people to take up arms against this insurrection. Okay. Uh, and so that's how that ended up being defeated. And then the OAS signed a treaty with the French government, I believe in, uh, in 1962. Okay. Um, but. <laughs> that might not be the end of the story okay because I'm sure you're aware of this in 1963 there were reports of an old, former OAS officer Sutray who there's an FBI report was in Dallas on the day that Kennedy was assassinated and he was immediately deported to France, uh, within 24 hours. There's actually a CIA report on this. All right. And it was not really made public until Henry Hurt wrote his book on the assassination, which I believe is 1985 called reasonable doubt. He devoted several pages to this. Now I don't have to tell you that that's an interesting piece of information because we know the way the OAS felt about JFK.
0: All
1: right. You know, and so that was never investigated. I, at least to to my knowledge by the Warren commission, you won't see anything in the 26 volumes about Soutre, you know, being in Dallas and it certainly merited an investigation.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, Jim, in For the Record 1162, uh, it's titled Farewell America Part 1. Uh, there was an enigmatic book about the JFK assassination that is usually seen as having been published by French intelligence called Farewell America. That's where I got the title. Uh, the mayor of Paris after Joe Biden was elected, uh, sent out a tweet saying, Welcome back, America. And so I, I borrowed from that. But I said, farewell, America. And in, in that uh, program, I accessed uh, David Talbot's material from the devil's chessboard at length. And one of the things that was so significant about the OAS attempts on the Gaulle's life is that there is very credible evidence that they were assisted by elements of CIA. And JFK actually had uh, a very revealing statement that he made to the French political leadership about those attempts and what he was capable of doing something of doing about. It.
1: Yes, because in, in Talbot's book, he details this and says that Kennedy was on the phone with the French ambassador. All right during this crisis in Paris where the OAS tried to overthrow de Gaulle overtly. And not only did he say that, hey, look, I'm not a part of this at all. He volunteered to send the Seventh Fleet into the Mediterranean if de Gaulle wanted him to. But he also added very troubling words. You know, I don't know what the CIA is doing in all this. They do things that I don't even know about. Okay, so he he was unsure. It turns out, of course, that the CIA was encouraging the overthrow of De Gaulle. And there are several sources, very credible sources about this, which Talbot used in his book and I use in the book, uh, JFK revisited. The evidence for this is is utterly overwhelming that the CIA was in league with the OAS. I mean, even Andrew Tully, a very, very sympathetic writer about the CIA, in his book, CIA Inside Story, you know, he had to admit that there was significant information that said that this was the case, all right? And and by the way, he got this from a couple of French newspapers, you know, like L'Express being one of them, you know? So, yes, I mean, in, in JFK revisited the book, I name about six or seven sources, okay, that indicates that, yes, the CIA was involved with the overthrow, the attempted overthrow of De Gaulle, all right, in 1961, all right? And so, and as you know, Tim Weiner, the former New York Times reporter, tried to attack us on just that point. In the book, I make a a very, uh, I believe, substantial counterattack showing that evidently Tim didn't read what his own newspaper was writing about this at the time that it happened. Because even the New York Times had to admit that there was evidence that the CIA was in league with the OAS trying to overthrow uh, de Gaulle. So just, just, uh, just very just,
0: briefly, just, in our first interview we dealt with Tim Weiner's hit piece on uh, Oliver Stone, uh, JFK the visited, and by extension obviously was yourself and in effect he red-baited Oliver Stone, the, the film and yourself, saying that you were disseminating uh, KGB slash Soviet propaganda, and as we noted There is not a single Soviet or KGB source anywhere in the film or the associated book. It simply is not true. Right,
1: right. And then, you know, and, and by the way, and, and I wrote a response to this in which I said the title of it was something like, why Tim Weiner never called me. It's, it's very, I believe, you know, when you're going to do something like that, You owe it to the people you're attacking to at least get their side of the story. I mean, that's what we call journalistic ethics, which I believe when it comes to this case, that disappeared a long time ago. You're aware of that also. When it comes to the case.
0: I was about to add, Jim, the term journalistic ethics is largely an oxymoron <laughs> I'm afraid in twenty twenty two. I mean yeah. maybe that, that reflects my own pessimism. But uh boy when you take a look at the at the massive amounts of fresh fertilizer that are being pitchforked forward in the name of journalism these days, uh it's hard to escape that conclusion. I agree totally. Um, back to uh JFK, something that w- was interesting too, well it was not in the movie, uh one of Guy Bannister's investigators, we'll get the Guy Bannister on uh, five forty four Lafayette Place, five thirty-one, and uh, no five forty-four Camp Street, five thirty-one Lafayette Place. But one of his investigators, a guy named Maurice Brooks Gatlin, uh credibly relayed to people that he had allegedly conveyed a hundred thousand dollars from the CIA two French generals to overthrow de Gaulle. Of course, he has not been around to bear historical witness to that because in 1965 he went out a fifth floor hotel window in Panama, so that was the end of him. But it certainly is consistent with everything else we know about uh, Kennedy, about de Gaulle, about the OAS, and uh, policy toward Algeria. I'd like to uh move south in our world tour here, so to speak, uh, Jim, and, and talk about an area in which, once again, Kennedy was not only way ahead of his time, but an area in which, once again, he began drawing on uh, the Council of Edmund Gullian, and that is in Africa. Uh, tell us about the Congo, the Munda, Eisenhower's attitude, JFK's attitude. This is undoubtedly a discussion that will uh, be continued in our next interview next week.
1: This is a huge subject, and it's very, very important. Congo, if I remember correctly, is the second biggest country in Africa. It's the biggest country in sub-Saharan Africa. All right. They had been colonized by Leopold and Belgium for, I believe, eight decades. And this was one of the most brutal colonizations. Uh, there was a famous book about this called King Leopold's Ghost, you know, uh, in colonial history at that time, you know. And so Belgium made an agreement to withdraw and they allowed the Congolese people to have both a constitution and an election. And the winner of this election was a guy named Patrice Lumumba, who was very anti-colonialist, all right? But he, but the important thing is he wasn't a communist, okay? He was not a communist, all right. But he was very anti-colonialist, all right. Well, what happened is that Belgium never planned on setting Congo free; they did a very, very, very fast and abrupt withdrawal. Okay. Hoping that Lumumba's government would fall into trouble and that they would have to be called back in by the remaining Belgian people there in order to maintain order, which is exactly what happened. Okay. It went exactly according to plan. All right. Uh, and what happened is that Lumumba resisted the Belgians coming back in. And he pleaded for help from the United Nations and Dag Hammarskjöld. But it takes a while to get that kind of process through the UN, you know. So he made a terrible mistake and he asked Moscow for help. All right. Then he went to the United States. Eisenhower deliberately avoided him, did not meet with him. And unbeknownst, To Kennedy, who had sent Averill Harriman to meet with Lumumba. And Harriman came back and said, no, this guy is not a communist. He's a nationalist. I don't see any problem with backing Lumumba. Okay. All right. And Lumumba actually sent a message to Kennedy before he became president. Okay. Asking him to urge Dag Hammarskjöld to intervene. So Lumumba is now, unbeknownst to him, because he asked Moscow for help, he's targeted by the CIA, all right? And Alan Dulles essentially gives Devlin, the CIA station chief in Congo, I believe it was a $100,000 budget, the equivalent of a million dollars today, to go ahead and get rid of Lumumba before... Kennedy is inaugurated. It's very obvious this was part of the objective to beat uh, the deadline. Know, I,
0: I, I'd like to interrupt the discussion at this point simply because we're almost out of time. And I wanted to emphasize, I, I don't think that there is any event in either JFK's presidency or the immediate run-up to it that highlights... His political understanding uh, at the time, which was way ahead of any other major world leader, uh, he saw Lumumba's political stance as anti-colonial, as did Abel Harriman. But because he asked for aid from Moscow, he was cast as a communist. And I think in microcosm, Patrice Lumumba's situation exemplifies the massive bloodletting that took place during the Cold War in the developing world because of the failure of our political establishment to utilize the kind of vision That JFK brought to the situation in the Well, We'll take this up. You know, something you pointed out in the film, there is a famous picture of JFK basically closing his eyes and putting his hand to the side of his head. I I was familiar with the picture. I didn't realize that that picture was of JFK receiving the news about Lumumba being killed, which he was not told about by the CIA.
1: That's exactly correct. It was taken by Jock Lowe, the White House photographer. Unbeknownst to him, the call was coming in telling Kennedy that Lumumba was dead about three weeks after he had been killed. That reaction in that picture, in my opinion, and a lot of other people, that tells you the whole story <laughs> right there in one picture. Okay.
0: It, it, it is a huge thing, and we'll come back to this, because this is a very important discussion. I'm talking about Dog Hammersholt. That's just, uh, you know, see, the, 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 the card in his, in his collar when they found his body, just spectacular. Uh, Jim, very quickly, we're almost out of time. Uh, Kennedys and King, where can they pick up the documentary okay. in the book? And Black Ops Radio.
1: Okay, KennedysandKing.com is the website that I'm the editor of. Very informative articles and reviews you'll find there. And then the book you can order through Barnes & Noble or Abbey Books or Amazon. JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass by myself with an introduction by Oliver Stone. And a DVD, you can either stream that, there's several places that are streaming it, or you can purchase a DVD package through Shout Factory or Amazon.
0: And of course you are a semi-regular on Black Ops Black Radio. Black Ops
1: Radio, uh, yes, radio show in, out of
0: Vancouver. And periodically in our Zoom Q&A sessions on Patreon, you'll be updating us on various aspects of uh, the publications with regard to the Kennedy assassination and new developments. This concludes for the record program number 1265. Interview number four with Jim DiAjamio about JFK Revisited. For this is being recorded on um, October seventh of the year, twenty twenty two. For Jim Bj this is David Resane. Thanks for listening.